All right, the, the, uh, the title of my lesson tonight is uh, um, Jesus the Suffering Servant. Uh, I think I got a, a different title I want to call it, though. And uh, what we're going to call it is... Uh, all I can say is thank you, Lord. Kind of started in Genesis 2, where we're told that into the nostrils of man, God breathed the breath of life and man became a living soul. When that happened, we were created differently than anything else. And our lives were not to be restricted to things of this earth. And so we live with a, with a being, a soul, that will last forever somewhere. So that in reality, when the end comes here, we're really just beginning. And we were given this incredible opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we'd be able to, to be in heaven forever. We're a unique creature with that capacity and possibility. And I'm not sure when I did it. I'm not sure when the first one was. But I blew it. And I know, I know I can read in my Bible in the book of Romans and and it can and it can it tells me that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I understand that. And I also understand kind of the, the cliche line we use. Well, nobody's perfect. But at the end of the day, I didn't have to sin. But I did. And frankly, when I sinned, that was it. My fate was completely sealed. My, my future was locked down. I don't remember the first one, but I know there's been a bunch since. Romans 3 is kind of an odd passage. Because it says that all have sinned, referencing all accountable before and after, but nobody made me sin. When I sinned, I did it because I chose to. And that sealed my fate. At that point, unable to do anything to affect my destiny in and of myself. I'm done. And so for me to have any shot at that 
wonderful place of heaven where my living, lasting, never going to die soul would be forever, my only shot was another. The moment I sinned, I became what we would call totally dependent. Got to have help from another. God had a plan long before Clark Sims ever came on the scene. And he knew the one to step in for one like me. The passage that that we're going to kind of begin with is in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to read all of this. I just want to read you a, a, a phrase or two. Okay? He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And it's not like God got in the ear of Isaiah and said, Look, Isaiah, this is what I want you to write. But don't tell Jesus. You know that's ridiculous. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into And he knew exactly what his destiny was to be. And he knew how I would treat him. Suffering. And he still came. And all I can say is thank you, Lord. You know, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 4 that references Jesus, verse 15, and says that, that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet he didn't sin. Now, look, let me tell you about Hebrews 4, okay? Hebrews 4 goes back. Hebrews 4 is able to look at how things worked out. By the time Hebrews 4 was penned, okay? By the time Hebrews 4 was penned, Jesus had already lived, died, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, and the church had been established. That all had happened 
by the time you get to Hebrews 4. So Hebrews 4 could say he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. It's that yet without sin part that kind of messes me up. Because by the time we read Hebrews 4, that's already happened. Okay? Thank God he didn't sin. But Hebrews 4 is this sobering reminder that he could have. The fact that he was tempted means by its base level definition he could have. If Jesus could not have sinned, right? That he wasn't tempted. Tempted has to mean he could have done it. I've been here enough, I've probably told you this before. I can't stand being in the same world with ranch dressing. It just freaks me out. I really don't like being around other people that like it. You know, I just, you know, and I know I've got a pretty small circle of acquaintances based on that, but it, it just freaks me out. And you take anything that I love, and the list is long. But you put a dollop of ranch dressing on it, I have no interest in it, no desire. I don't want it at all. In fact, if I was smart, I'd go on the ranch dressing diet, just put it on everything. And <laughs> don't tempt me at all. Because I don't want it. You'd put mayonnaise on cardboard, not be good. You know, but ranch dressing, mm -mm. temptation has to mean there's an allure, there's an enticement, there's a this just might be. And he was tempted in every way like you are. Thank God by Hebrews 4, he without sin. I love, I love the, uh, you know, the stories of, of Matthew and Luke that tell us about the birth of Jesus. But I'll be honest with you, my favorite is John. John doesn't go into near the details. John just gives a, a simple phrase. But I think it, in my mind, says it is good or better than anything else. John 1 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think that's beautiful. God's Son, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Tempted in every way like we are. Now, there's some pretty powerful stuff that takes place in Scripture where the words are never actually recorded. Let me give you an example. I think about a moment. I think about a moment that happened right before 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think about a moment right before Jesus came here. I think about a moment when Father and Son are together right before Jesus came here. I think about a moment when Jesus left the place with His Father with the very real possibility He never gets back. You know? Right before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus left the presence of the Father in a place where they'd been for all eternity with the possibility He never gets back. If you believe that He was tempted in every way like you are, then you have to believe there's a possibility He never gets back. And all I can say is thank you, Lord. He wanted a computer. He wanted a robot. He wanted automatic. When he left, there was a possibility he never gets back. Maybe Matthew 4 is a good example. Have you ever read Matthew 4 where Jesus is in, is in the wilderness and He's fasted for 40 days and nights? And Have you ever read that passage with this view? My soul was hanging in a balance. You see, I, I, you know, I, you have to give the enemy his due. The what Bible says he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He, he's been doing his thing for a long time. He knows what buttons to push with you and with me. And he knew even in that wilderness, he knew, watch this, get him, got them. If I can just entice and allure or tempt Jesus on such a level that he gives in, game over. Just let me tell you this. No reason for me to drive through the rain to get here tonight. No reason for you to take your kids that have been in school all day and bring them here tonight. No reason. Game over in Matthew 4. Destiny sealed for everybody. Once we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, that's it. We ought to read Matthew 4 a little differently. 
with a high level of appreciation. He carried our future on his shoulders literally every day. And when the Bible says the enemy tempted him in Matthew 4, that's got to mean he could have done it. That's got to mean he was enticed. The enemy's not an idiot. He knew the buttons to push even with the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's, it's important for us to note tonight that Jesus answered every one of those temptations with, with the phrase, it is written. And I, and I think it's just really valuable for us to look at that because what that tells us is that Jesus was ready for this moment before he ever got in it. You probably know this like I do. The heat of the moment is really never the wise time to figure out, huh, what am I going to do? Somewhere along the line, an earthly mama and an earthly daddy, teachers, set him down and listened to him and taught him and answered his questions and did the kind of things that would help Jesus to be ready in this moment so with your soul literally hanging in the balance could go either way right here. Jesus resisted. And all I can say is thank you, Lord. There's some unanswered questions in John 8. So I'll just speculate a bit. Portions of this you can try to figure out for yourself. But I know in John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching. Religious men bring in a woman caught in the act of adultery throw it down on the floor right in front of him. Jesus, what should we do with her? And they knew, and Jesus knew, their entire purpose was to be able to accuse Jesus no matter what he said. They thought they'd set up the perfect scheme. If Jesus says, Stoner, there's a plan. If Jesus says, have mercy, there's a plan. And Jesus knew what their intentions were. And truth be told, here's the irony. They could care less about that woman caught in the act of adultery. She was a means to an end, you know. She was a piece of meat. No value to them at all. When on the other hand, she was the very reason the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus' view of her was different. 
And so Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground as though he doesn't hear them. And you know how this is going to work out. You know what he's going to say and, and you know what they're going to do and you know that ultimately Jesus is going to tell her to go her way and sin no more. It's a great story. And we don't even know her name. But why did he stoop down? And here's where I would insert, you're totally free to speculate what you think. But I'm going to tell you what I think. I think those jokers pushed Jesus to the edge. He knew what their intentions were. He knew they were up to no good. It was a continual, constant pattern. And part of me just really thinks Jesus needed to take a breath. <laughs> what are they doing to me? I kind of think his immediate reaction might not have been the best reaction. You know why I know that? My reaction might have been an immediate reaction. My immediate reaction might not have been the best reaction, you know? You know what they're up to. You know what they're trying to do. So could it be? When Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground as if he didn't hear them, could it be that your soul was hanging in the balance? And all I can say is thank you, Lord. You remember Isaiah 53? You remember everything that Jesus when it was told about how, what he would face. Uh, you remember Genesis 2 when into the nostrils of man God breathed the breath of life and man became a living soul. And You remember in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And everything, he was involved in all of creation. You know all that. And, and Jesus knew. <laughs> he knew before he came. He knew when he came. He knew what his destiny was going to be. But by the time you get to Matthew 26, he is standing on the door step. You know, you can, you can deal with a lot of things in life as long as it's out there. You know, but you put it close and it becomes something very different. Jesus had existed throughout all eternity, timeless. No one was in front of him. But by the time you get to Matthew 26, buddy, it's tough. And some things start getting revealed about Jesus. You remember? That in Matthew chapter 26, the Bible tells us about a gathering of the disciples. 
And you remember that it's in Matthew 26 that Simon Peter tells Jesus, even if I go to prison with you or die with you, you know the sentiment, I'll never leave your side. And it was there in that environment that Jesus told Simon Peter before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me three times, you know? And I think about the reality of Jesus telling Simon Peter, you're going to deny me, deny that you even know me, deny your favorable relationship with me. I think about how desperately Jesus must have wanted to tell him, thank you, Peter. Well, I sure could use your help. Sure could use that shoulder to lean on. Now, you know what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter says, I'll never leave your side. I'm with you to the end. And I'm convinced, this is me, you're entitled to your speculation. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think when Simon Peter said, I'll never leave your side, I figure you meant it. I do. Again, Clark, why do you know that? Because I've been in rooms kind of like that. Kind of like this. Been at Bible camps or other places where I've made commitments kind of like Simon Peter did, you know? Only to realize how tough it is when I've left that comfortable environment. I believe when Simon Peter said, I'll never, I'll never leave you, I, I believe he meant it. Now, why do I know? It, I, I mean, this is, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is, this is weird. You want, you want to get a good grasp of just how much Jesus was struggling with your destiny hanging in the balance. <laughs> Consider this. Jesus goes with his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he takes deep into the Garden of Gethsemane three. Peter, James, and John. And he tells those three, my soul is deeply distressed. Jesus is hurting Big time. Jesus, who holds your eternity in his hands, <laughs> he's struggling. And he's always known what his destiny was to be, but here he is standing at the doorstep. And I'm going to tell you something, there's no guarantees here. No guarantees. Now, how do you know Jesus is struggling? Let me tell you one big clue. How much was Jesus struggling for him to take Simon Peter with him deep into the Garden of Gethsemane? How about that? How much did Jesus need a shoulder to lean on 
for him to take a guy that he knew in a mere matter of moments was going to deny that he even knows him. How could he take Peter into the garden? What was the state of desperation where Jesus was for him to take a betrayer with him? And then it happened. The cat got out of the bag. And we've known he struggled. And we've known he's had a hard time. And we've known this wasn't easy, but now he said it. Father, If it's possible, remove this cup from me. Translate that, Clark. Okay, here it is. Father, I don't want to do it. I've known for all eternity. I've become flesh and dwelt among mankind. And I've always known this moment was coming. But I'm standing at the doorstep. And this is not easy. I don't want to do it. I was baptized for the remission of my sins. The blood of Jesus Christ. But before that blood was shed, he admitted, I don't want to do it. If there's any other way, I don't know what you think your favorite word in the Bible is. And we could debate that for a good while, I'm sure. But I tell you what, what you're about to see in Matthew 26 is a good one. With a sigh of relief and a hope for tomorrow, I tell you, One of the most beautiful words in the Bible was spoken by Jesus. Right after he said, I don't want to do it. He said, nevertheless. You'd be hard pressed to take out that Bible you hold in your hand and find a more beautiful word in that entire Bible than the word Nevertheless, I don't want to do it. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thine. Jesus taught us a pretty valuable lesson there, by the way. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about 
am I ready to submit to the will of the Father? Before Matthew 26 concludes, he makes his way toward the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane, goes through the mockery of a trial, goes to a place called Calvary with a crown of thorns on his head and nails in his hand. Dies upon that tree, raises on the third day, ascends to the right hand of God, victorious over sin and death. And all I can say is thank you, Lord. There are no guarantees. The enemy pushed literally till the end. No guarantees. And all I can say is thank you, Lord. By the way, I'd like to pose this little question. When you take a look at what I believe to be the facts, that this was not easy for Jesus, that it could have gone either way, that he could have given in, that he didn't want to do it. When you look at all that and you're able to see, when you're able to see, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, does that make you think more of him or less? What do you see in his struggle? Again, you're entitled to your view. But when I see his struggle, it only skyrockets my appreciation for what he's done for me. Nothing easy about it. He suffered mightily and struggled up till the end. But he paid a price that gives an old sinner like me hope for tomorrow. My destiny was sealed, but thanks be to God, through the perfect blood of Jesus, I have hope for tomorrow. He left in John 1 with the possibility he might never get back. But he ascended to the right hand of God where he still is. Because even though he was tempted in every way like you are, he did not sin. And all I can say thank you Lord right thank you Lord thank you all appreciate it